You're listening to WERA LP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM. Streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. You can definitely see traces of different types of curiosity throughout the historical record and the ways that throughout history, people are trying to grapple with gender transgression and understand what's happening. And certainly there are some approaches that are much more objectifying, much more negative, are interested in kind of a salacious story. But then there are many others that are trying to get a different perspective, right? That are trying to just understand. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, this is Choose to be Curious, and I'm your guest host, Matt Ferguson. I'm a graduate student in philosophy at American University, doing research in epistemology, ethics, phenomenology, trans philosophy, and, most recently, curiosity. Despite being, by all accounts, an exhaustingly curious child, I never thought much about curiosity before. I'd never even heard of curiosity studies until I started grad school. As I've started to learn more about curiosity, I found myself asking more questions. What does it mean to be curious? Does curiosity require action? Can curiosity be bad? And if so, what would that look like? How can curiosity shape our world for the better? Last semester, I took a class on philosophy of curiosity. And for the final paper, I explored curiosity, history, and epistemic injustice. I looked at how a lack of community knowledge and history is a sort of epistemic injustice for marginalized communities, epistemic injustice being broadly an injustice of access to and production of knowledge. It seemed to me that in order to recognize that history is missing, and then to go find it, one has to be curious. Archives and oral histories are great examples of projects that look for these missing histories. I also see them as deeply curious projects. It's a positive curiosity, a curiosity that motivates people to ask questions and look for new information that's at work in the archives. I look specifically at trans histories and archives, and spent a lot of time exploring the digital transgender archive, an online collection of transgender history. Widespread visibility of trans people has only come about recently, and there's still a lot of history about the community that isn't well known, and likely more that was erased. As I wandered down virtual rabbit holes of trans history, I felt my own curiosity and excitement flare up, and I wanted to learn more about the story behind the archive. Our guest today is Dr. K.J. Rawson, a professor of English at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. His research is in rhetoric, feminist and queer theory, LGBT studies, and digital media, and much of his work focuses on archives. KJ is also the founder and director of the Digital Transgender Archive. Welcome, KJ. Thank you so much. So I guess first off, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about the Digital Transgender Archive. Sure. So the project for me actually started because I was really fascinated by thinking about how transgender history was being collected. So I was, of course, interested in the history itself, but then also interested in the process of how certain materials become history and become historical and become part of the historical record. So I really wanted to find out what kind of archives were collecting trans history, how they were making decisions about what to collect and what not to collect, how researchers would get access to those materials, So I had a long string of questions that I was trying to pursue, but I actually had a really difficult time finding archives that had significant collections of trans historical materials. So that was the moment for me when I thought, we have to do better. We have to be able to help researchers who are interested in this area to find these materials much more easily than I was able to find them. 
So that was the initial spark for the project, was really to try to get trans history to be more accessible to a wider public audience. What, so I guess what did you what were you noticing as when you were kind of doing that f- initial research into what things were kind of kept and preserved as historical? Did you notice kind of a trend in what was kind of being accepted as history versus what wasn't? Well, one of the first major research challenges that people who are interested in learning more about this area is just figuring out what counts as transgender. I mean, the term is so new in in that it really didn't start to be widely used until the last part of the 20th century. But yet it's such a widely used term now. It's it's quite ubiquitous, um, particularly in the U.S. And so then when we're interested in doing history in this area, we have to get outside of our our current language in order to be successful in finding materials that are more than you know 30 or 40 years old. So what that means is that there's a lot of work that archivists have been doing behind the scenes to try to identify materials that are relevant for contemporary researchers who are interested in transgender history. Uh, so some of the things that immediately kind of float to the surface um, are things that you know, tell a particular side of the story. So I'm thinking about things like newspaper clippings um, or police records, right, which will document gender transgressions from a particular point of view, which is another way of saying a not a very pretty picture, right, because it is often covering, you know, scandalous accounts or moments when people who are transgressing gender norms were encountering the police uh, in, in surveillancing those transgressions. And so, what we, um, what I try to often work with archivists to do is push beyond that. Are there are there first person narratives or or photographs or other accounts that we can get to that help to provide a, a more complete and a, and a bigger picture that can be really hard to to get to, frankly. Yeah. So I guess so. I've kind of spent some time thinking about how curiosity can be both helpful and harmful depending on you know, kind of who, who's being curious, what are their motivations, and what you've said about, you know, newspaper clippings and police reports showing a very particular kind or a story, telling a very particular story of trans life seems to me to kind of to mirror that in terms of that's a that's a kind of particular curiosity about trans lives that because it's institutionalized kind of, as you said, floats to the surface. I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts on like kind of that negative curiosity. And then I would see kind of a positive curiosity being the trying to look for the kind of the first person narratives and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely see traces of different types of curiosity throughout the historical record and the ways that throughout history, people are trying to grapple with gender transgression and understand what's happening And certainly there are some approaches that are much more objectifying, much more negative, are interested in kind of a salacious story. But then there are many others, as you point out, that are trying to get a different perspective, right? That are trying to just understand or get, um, give space in order to uh, tell about someone's experiences. On the other side of it, of course, I get to see the kinds of searches that people are conducting on the DTA website. And I think the same thing is mirrored there as well. Um, You can see some of the searches um, that are almost 
already looking for the negative coverage. And yet then there are others that seem to be looking for uh, things that might validate the searcher's identity or their own experiences. But I think that what's really important to take away from that is that all of those accounts are part of trans history and are part of the way that trans people are understood today and have been represented. And so for me, putting all of that up there is, is important because it helps, to t helps us to understand where we are now even though there are certainly moments when I might want to censor something because I know that as, you know, a, a, a curious person encounters that, they could really be put off by it or be, be hurt by what they read or what they see. But at the same time, I think it it's important to not shelter ourselves from from what has been said and how trans folks have been represented throughout history. I think it's really interesting how you can trace people's curiosity as they engage with the archive. It seems like there's like a secondary kind of layer of I guess a story that you're that you can collect from that seeing and it'd be interesting to see over time how people's searches change or like engagement with with the the DTA evolves or may or may not track kind of trends in kind of broader cultural discussions. Yeah, it's I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, for example, when um, the most recent military ban was discussed, you'd see more searches related to trans folks in the military. And so there's you can easily trace a correspondence between what's being discussed in popular culture and what people are then searching for on the site. Uh, part of that is probably because the media uses the site quite a bit um, in order to to pull primary sources to supplement stories. Um, but it's also, I think, to take a step back and try to look beyond that and see if there are search patterns and trends. Um, I'm sure you probably have a sense, but you can get really deep information about how people interact with websites from um, analytics. And so you can get, from this side of the table, you can really get lost in the rabbit hole of all of the things that um, you can see people doing on a website, um, probably more than most users are comfortable with. <laughs> so I guess kind of continuing on this sort of kind of other people's engagement with the archives, when you, as you kind of constructed it, or as it's kind of taken this the shape of the website that it is now, or have you kind of designed it in any way to like attract people's curiosities? Or I know I know there's um, on the main page is a collection of user guides for people who are new to the archive, broken up into kind of different categories of what you're looking for, how you want to to search. I guess like how how kind of how did you come up with that? What is what was your thought process behind how other people would engage with it? Well, this is actually the second version of the site that we've had up since we launched. Uh, the first version really put the search bar as the front and center focal point for people who visited the website. Uh, but I realized not long after that that it made the assumption that people knew what to search for. <laughs> and many people were actually coming to the site without having a sense of a particular person or or concept or subject term that they wanted to search for in the collection. Instead, they just wanted to like check stuff out and see what was up there. And so one of the first things that we did was build in browsing options. 
So for example, you can pull up a map and browse materials that are about different places that are have been tagged on that map. You can browse by subject terms. You can browse by, you know, the collections who have contributed the materials. So again, we we added all of those layers in order for people to find ways into the collection and to find things that might resonate with them. Um, so similarly, you pointed out that we have some of these guides that help users who even might not want to take advantage of those browsing options. So we have a starter's guide. So basically, how is this site working? What are some collections you might want to check out first? Uh, we also have a race and ethnicity guide. And um, both of those projects were actually done by undergraduate students who work on the project and who are really interested in helping visitors to the site find other ways into the collection. And so we know that a lot of people visit the website in our interested in questions of race and ethnicity and how they intersect with gender identity. And so we wanted to highlight some of the collections on the site that would support those kinds of research activities. It's, it sounds like kind of there's, so in the, in the initial format of the archive, there was maybe a, a thought that people would kind of come and already knew what they were looking for. And now it's, there's maybe a recognition that there's Sure, people who are like, okay, I want to look for this particular thing about trans history, and then other people who come and just browsing. So it's kind of there's a trying to kind of guide people's curiosity or help kind of facilitate their initial kind of questions um, and help them to move their curiosity in in ways that is productive. Well, and one thing that might be helpful to mention in this conversation in particular is that one of the features of website design that we were thinking of is trying to make as few dead ends as possible, right? So whenever a person gets to even one record where they're looking at a postcard, underneath that, there'll be information about who donated that postcard, uh, where it's held, the subjects, you know, the topics that are related to that postcard. And many of those are hyperlinks that will pull up a whole new search based on whichever of those hyperlinks you click. So again, at each one of those paths, the idea is that it will then open up a whole other web of other paths that people can take and follow. Uh, and that was really important in designing the site because we wanted people to continually ask questions and keep following interest as they realized that this brought them to this other topic that they wanted to pursue further. I would love to see like a map of how everything connects because I just have this kind of mental image of the kind of never-ending web of how things connect and I think that's such a great way to almost kind of represent the trans community you know as some large concept really trying to show that we are this like multifaceted community and that there isn't any way to just kind of search for one thing and say okay I've got all the answers now and that's it but stories lead in so many different directions and there's so many different experiences. I think it really brings kind of a richness to trans history and trans identities. Well, and one of the neat things is if you think about a traditional archive where you have materials in a box and that box sits on a shelf and like a library, if you're browsing, sometimes you'll see items next to each other that relate to one another, right? And you may have found the book you were looking for, and then there's something right next to it that is related. And you're like, oh, that's great. I can now look at that too. I didn't realize that there was a book written about this other, about this topic that was similar to the one that I was looking for. But what's really cool about a digital archive is it kind of blends those two things in many ways, right? So instead of having this self-contained archival box, 
when you do a search, it's almost pulling together this unique archival box for you in response to that particular search. And then as you're looking through it, it gives you things that are adjacent to, that are connected to what you were looking for in the first place. And then as you keep going, it's continually rearranging the results so that you have more and more available to you. Yeah, I'd read an, an interview you done with Ben Power, who runs the Sexual Minorities Archive somewhere in Massachusetts. I remember, he, I think he talked about the fact that the, that archive is in his house and the kind of personal, the more personal sense of that of, you know, you're in someone's home. I guess the cool thing is about the DTA is that because it is digital in a way, kind of everyone gets to have it in their homes. <laughs> um, I, you know, I can sit on my couch and go down a, a rabbit hole of of documents and in terms of i guess like being accessible to a wide range of people yeah being able to access the stuff online and especially i'd imagine for if you've got kind of someone who's just coming out or questioning their gender identity to be able to access these documents in history from the comfort of their home or wherever i see that as being really important to kind of spreading awareness and getting stories and information out there. Yeah, I would agree with you completely. And, you know, so much of the feedback that we get from users is often along those lines that uh, people didn't have access to collections or they, you know, were really excited to find these materials online because, of course, our materials come up in Google search results, right? So sometimes people will really stumble across them without navigating to the Digital Trends Archive in particular. And so, you know, for many folks, they might not go out of their way to travel to an archive and do research in person, but they will click on a website or they will, you know, do some searching and you can do so within the privacy of your own home or as you're moving through the world in various ways. And, and of course, it changes the way that materials on the site circulate, right? Because people can share them and there can be, you know, discussion points that arise from particular objects in the DTA, which might be hard to replicate in a physical collection. Do you have a vision or a hope for the DTA's role in trans studies moving forward or even the trans community more broadly? Well, I think that... One of the, the best things the DTA can do is just be there available to researchers when they want to do primary source historical research. And the more we know about what people are looking for and the kinds of research needs that there are, that can certainly shape our collecting goals. Uh, because as you might imagine, there's so much more out there than we have been able to provide access to so far, right? There's only so much time and resources available. Um, so we're constantly making decisions about uh, collecting priorities. But I really, you know, hope that this helps to take down some of the barriers that have prevented researchers in trans studies from being able to work with these materials, because there are very real material barriers that prevent people from being able to conduct historical research in this area. And then with respect to trans communities more broadly, again, just giving people quick access to knowing that there are trans ancestors, that there are folks who have been transgressing gender norms throughout human history and having the ability to, to read some accounts of that, to, to see some photographs, um, from earlier times 
to get a sense of the continuity across time and through across cultural contexts is a really powerful thing. And, you know, if we can support some individuals in, in helping to connect with that, I mean, that's that's a tremendous success in my book. Kind of a, another question I'd love to hear your thoughts on is kind of a lot of trans people who are involved and leading the project. Do you think that having this project kind of come from within the community shapes or has shaped this um, versus if there were a lot more cis people kind of compiling the information? Yes, of course. I mean, I think it's really helpful to have trans folks involved in a trans-specific project. And that has been the case from the start of the project and will continue to be (laughs) that way moving forward. But I also think it's really important to, to not get too exclusionary in recognizing the importance of trans voices um, because I think six voices also bring a lot to the table. And I also think it's important that it's not just the trans cis divide that is held up as the only one that matters in thinking about constructing a, a major project like the DTA. I'm also attuned to all kinds of other ways that people bring their experiences and their perspectives to the project. And I'm and I'm always trying to push out against my own limitations and the things that, you know, I I recognize that I may not be aware enough of, right? And so I think it's it's a little more complicated than just transcis. And even though that may be kind of the the primary angle of recognizing that um, participation is important, but then also just continuing to push against that and push beyond that, I think has been something that's important to me as the director of this project. And one example of that would be accessibility considerations. For any good project, it's always a matter of continuing to question, right? To be curious, like, what is it What is it that we're missing? What is it that we could be doing better? And I think that that's an, a really motivating and inspiring question for me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You've got to kind of always keep being curious and keep asking who whose voices aren't heard. What do we need to kind of keep doing to be better? One fun question as we start to wrap up is the what's the most kind of interesting or surprising thing that you've come across in the archive? Oh, that's kind of a mean question <laughs> to ask someone who who loves this kind of work. Well, I guess for me, I get I get really excited about some of the earlier content. Uh, so some of our earliest materials now date back to the 16th century. You know, we're just starting to move back to earlier times. And we're going to continue to try to predate that as much as possible. Um, So I think that that's, for me, some of the more exciting stuff, because it seems so much further removed from my experiences and from what most people perceive to be transgender history. You mentioned this earlier of trying to kind of transgender as a fairly new term, relatively speaking. How do you go about, I guess, identifying what would count as trans history in the 16th century, 15th century? Yeah. So one of the really important parts of this project is that we don't treat transgender as an identity. We instead treat transgender as a practice. So to transgress gender norms is our main selection criteria rather than people who identify as transgender. And the reason, there are many reasons for that, but some of the reasons include the fact that the term transgender is so new, right? That if it was only 
if the collection only included people who self-identified as transgender, then it would be a very short time period of materials that we could collect. Um, but also, the term doesn't always travel well globally. So there are many cultural contexts in which transgender continues to not make sense. And I'm particularly thinking of places where sexuality and gender identity are not separate things. Yeah, there's, there's so much that I guess goes into Id identifying and tracing histories and made a, a really good point of that. What in a Western academic context, what we think of as gender and sexuality is different, very different in other spaces, in other places, times. So at the end of every episode, we do a big jar of wannabe curiosity analogies, and we have slips of paper with words on them, and we pick one and make an, an analogy to curiosity. So I have three pre-selected words, because I do not physically have the big jar of analogies with me today. <laughs> the word that I have is phone booth. So how is curiosity like a phone booth? I would say curiosity is like a phone booth because it can give you access to kind of a whole other world it's a way of building connections so you go into a phone booth and to to make a phone call to reach a friend or family member or something and i think in that way kind of curiosity is allows you to to make those connections to kind of be with someone or kind of travel somewhere else. Um, yeah, it's a way of connecting with the world. So KJ, your word is tulip. Hmm. How is curiosity like tulips? Hmm. How is curiosity like tulips? Well, I often think of tulips as a, a symbol of seasonal change and of awakening and of, of growth and freshness. And so in thinking of curiosity in that way, I can uh, see how we could approach it as, as a, a season or a moment when we, we really want to see change, right? See growth, see development, see beauty. Um, and often our curiosity is driving us to, to move to that kind of change or that kind of, of beauty or difference in the world. That's very nice. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. And then finally, we have a wannabe analogy for the listeners, and your wannabe analogy is mittens. So how is curiosity like mittens? You can tweet or post your analogy using hashtag analogy. So that is all we've got. Thank you so much, KJ, for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed chatting with you today, Matt. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can find all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com, and I hope you follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Don't forget to send us your mittens analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest host, Matt Ferguson. Matt is the first in what I hope will be a series of interviews conceived and conducted by American University undergraduate and graduate students in a course called Topics in Philosophy. Thanks, too, of course, to K.J. Rawson of the Digital Transgender Archive, a very cool resource. Links to the archive on my website. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and 
I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious is provided in part by Concentric Private Wealth, where changemakers develop clarity for today and confidence for tomorrow by centering on what matters most, which involves more than just money. More information at www.concentricpw.com. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.